It's no secret that writing can be lonely work, but does it really have to be? Whether you're full-time, part-time, or just starting out, you'll get insights into the tricks, tips, and production habits of writers from every level of the biz. From best-selling authors to those launching their first novels, you're sure to be in the company of friends as we encourage great writers to divulge and share their secrets. This is The Great Writer Share Podcast with your host, best-selling author, Daniel Wilcox. Hello and welcome to episode number 70 of the Great Writers Share podcast, where every week we hijack an hour or so of time from some of the kindest and hardest working writers around today to join us on the show and discuss everything that makes them tick, raw and bounce. I'm your host for this week, Daniel Wilcox, and today's date as of recording is Tuesday the 12th of January. And we are already racing through 2021. It feels really, really strange to be back in the driver's seat and be bringing one of these to you guys because we did a lot of batch recording before Christmas, um, had quite a few weeks off with the family and the friends. And yeah, 2021 has already gotten off to a very, very, let's say, interesting start. And we will leave it at that because I don't want to <laughs> linger anymore on a pandemic that has already taken up months and months of our lives. But going into um, my personal update... It's a new year and as part of the new year and as mentioned within the last, well not the last episode, the uh, goals episode with Faye, Holly and John, my word of this year is balance and that's something that I'm desperately trying to cling to. So uh, balance for me looks like being able to work, being able to have downtime, chill time, trying to find more of those pockets where I can just learn, where I can intellect, where I can ponder um, and just have fun. And while that is difficult at the minute, it is something that is happening. I'm definitely spending consciously more time reading, a bit more time sort of on video games and stuff, just cooling down. Um, I've had my son for a long couple of weeks, so I've been spending a lot of time with him and helping him with his homework. So finding that balance away from work and trying to find what minimum I need to do in order to make things work while also still growing my business. As part of that, I have, since the beginning of the year, now officially launched and finished all the pages for my website, which is over at www.danielwilcox.com. And that's Wilcox, which is W-I-L-L-C-O-C-K-S. And my two focuses for the beginning of this, well, the first half of this year are to um, crack on with my ghostwriting, because that brings in a steady balance, to market the books that I've currently got out, and to also... Um, get onto author services and offer lots more to people like you guys. If you're listening, I assume you're probably an author or writer of some kind. And as part of my coaching package, I've now got everything together. So I've got, a, like, like I said, the website's live. I've now got a service called the Short Story Studio, which is basically me editing people's short stories. I've, you know, worked within short stories for over half a decade. We launched the Other Stories podcast with Hawk and Cleaver, which brings in thousands of downloads a week. Um, I've launched anthology, so I'm sure that there's you know plenty I can offer to the uh, short story editing side of things. Um, I'm offering power hours in which people can basically just have me for an hour if you want to chat about anything specific, anything I can try and help with. And my book coaching is now officially live to anyone who wants to apply. So I've currently got uh, two clients and uh, I've got space probably on my roster for about between four and six. Um, so if you are currently trying to write a book, you're struggling a little bit, maybe it's your first time writing a book and you're just not sure how to get to the end. If you want a bit of extra knowledge in terms of publishing or marketing or just helping you along that journey and having someone's brain to tap for a you know a period of time, then you can find out all that information over at danielwilcox.com and just get involved. 
On today's show, I'm going to be talking to the incredible Paul Michael Anderson, who is a horror writer and a lovely human, as will be evidenced in this podcast. We talk writing morally murky characters since his latest book, Standalone, came out a little while ago. Um, we talk about finding ways to grow as an author with short stories. Paul has been in some incredible anthologies with some very big names, including Jack Ketchum and, of course, Stephen King. And uh, he talks a little bit about prioritising life as a writer and being able to live enough of a life that you have something to write about, which I found very, very interesting to listen to. So strap in for that as it comes up. In Patreon news, we have a new patron this week, and I'd like to say hello and hello again to the incredible Brett Jackson, who is someone who I've known for a fair few years, someone I've known personally, and uh, it's exciting seeing Brett go on his writing journey and getting stuck into the mud. So, hey Brett, welcome to the clan. An update that we have added to Patreon this month, and what will be going ahead for the next few months, maybe as a trial, maybe as forever, we'll see, um, which is the definition of a trial, Dan. Nice try. Uh, is we are now making our monthly Q&As a live event. So if anyone wants to watch myself, John Crennan, Holly Line and Faye Trask get asked questions from all over the board, uh, just exclusive content for patrons for a good hour or so on uh, Zoom, then just get involved over at www.patreon.com forward slash great writers share. And we do have a load of extra goodies over there. So just check it out and you can get quite the bang for your buck. But now without any further ado, we'll dive into the interview with the one and the only Paul Michael Anderson. Paul Michael Anderson is the author of the collection Bones Are Made To Be Broken, which Jack Ketchum called a dark carnival of rigorous intelligence and compassion, the title novella alone of which is well worth the price of admission, as well as the novellas I Can Give You Life and How We Broke with Bracken McLeod, and dozens of short stories, articles, and reviews. His new novella, Standalone, launches tomorrow as of the time of recording, and Stephen Graham Jones describes it as a metaphysical metaphysical science fiction slasher that doesn't scrimp on the gore and might just get you rooting for the guy with the machete, the axe, the knife, and that certain glint in his eye that lets you know it's all over. And with that introduction, Paul, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you. We've uh, we've had a whole backwards and forward trying to get you on the show. So I'm glad that you're you're here, you're in front of me, this is happening. Um, I've had questions and everything planned for, for weeks and it's been moved around, but but we're here. So let's go. And I thought um, a fun place to start in, in my mind, it might not, might not be so much for you, is uh, I'd love to go straight into blogging because I've seen on your website that you've been blogging since January 2015. And your first post says, this site is a work in progress. This is a longer work in progress than I anticipated. Have patience, he says, mostly to himself. Actually, honestly, this post is just because I hate that nothing found thing when you open this page. Talk to me about the start of your blogging journey and how you felt when you first posted that up. Um, so I have a very, there's the writer, American horror writer, Brian Keeney says, own every domain that you can. So you have it in case you, you may never use it, but have it just in case. And so six years ago, when my career was starting to kind of build up steam, that's when there was stuff. Um, I was talking to my editor, Michael Bailey, about maybe collecting some of my older short stories and putting them into a book, which came bones made to be broken. I was like, I probably should have a website. And so I just went on WordPress and kind of made one. I am not much of a blogger. I got my start in writing as a journalist in college. And the first, after a few reviews and a few news stories, they were, they asked if I wanted to um, be a columnist because I'm mildly funny at times. (laughs) And um, I was like, of course, you're going to pay me to just ramble on 
about whatever I feel like for 15 minutes for a thousand words at most, but 500 words, you know, typically is the max, but they sometimes will let me go further. And they're like, yeah, that's why we asked. So <laughs> like three years. Um, and I wrote about everything from, you know, things going on in politics. Cause this was 2002 through 2006 um, to, you know, one time I was like, I have nothing to write and I have a deadline of 15 minutes. Let's just talk about random things in my dorm room and, or what songs I want to play when I die, um, <laughs> which I which is when I decided I want a marching band, you know, and I want someone to prop my body up before they cremate me with my arms outstretched, like, so they can get final hugs. Um, <laughs> um, and it was fairly well received. Um, I once got to have a speeding ticket because the guy recognized me and I was like, oh shit. Um, wow. It was, I was um, dating my, then my now wife, um, I was dating my girlfriend at the time and I was driving back to my campus and I had class the next day. I was about to start teaching this is towards the end of my college career. And um, I come around this bend and it's like 35 miles per hour, which I don't know what it is in kilometers. Um, but I was going like 60. So the cop at the bottom of the hill and around the curve nailed me dead to rights. So he pulls me over and growing up in the city, growing up the way I did, you know, in America, I kind of have the bumper, bumper bowling lanes of life, like very low, dif- low difficulty. I have the easy setting on the game of life. For, <laughs> you know. But even so, like, you know, don't aggravate someone who has a gun. Um, so he nailed me dead to rights. I wasn't going to give him any shit. So he was like, license and registration. So I handed it over. And he's like, you know, I pulled you around. Like, I, I know exactly why you pulled me over, sir. It's late. I was trying to get home. But yeah, I totally know why. And, he ta- and he's like, all right. And he takes my license. He kind of walks away. And I hear the uh, crunch of gravel because we're on the side of a road. We're on the shoulder of a road. And then he stops. And I'm standing there. I'm staring straight through my windshield. And then he starts walking back. And I was like, fuck. What? Uh, you know, it's like 930 at night. I have to get ready for school the next day. But I'm like, I might not be going because <laughs> want to hear a cop walk away stop and then walk back and he has his flashlight out now and he kind of bends down he shines around my eyes he's like you're paul anderson i was like yeah like i'm fucking terrified at this point (laughs) he's like you write for the clarion call that's the newspaper i wrote for i was like yeah this is a rural area and i'm a fairly progressive person i was like oh oh no Oh no, this is 2006. So this is before like Trump's MAGA and all that bullshit. Um, but still, this is, this is post 9-11 where right and left really started getting polarized. I was like, oh shit. And all of a sudden the flashlight clicks. Off. I was like, I love your column. I never agree with you, but you're. I was like, what? What? <laughs> what? He's like, yeah, I mean, like I get your column every week. So it was a weekly paper. I was like, cool, man. I'm glad you like it. He's like, I sometimes fashion myself a writer. I sometimes think of myself as a writer myself. And I was like, cool. He's like, All right, you know what you did? And I was like, yeah. And I totally apologize. I totally, you, and he's like, yeah, especially at night, dude, a deer could walk across. You'd hit, you'd, you'd wreck and kill yourself. So he hands me back my license and says, go ahead. I'll see you. Uh, you behave yourself. And he let me go. He could have got me on, um, what is it? Uh, the big, that's dr- a felony driving offense. Um, he could have gotten me on that easily because in America, if you go 20 miles over the limit, it's immediately felony. And he got me 20 miles over the limit. And he just let me go. 
And I was, sh- and I, he pulled away, he left and I did not pull off the shoulder to get back to my apartment because I was shaking so much. I was like, <laughs> did that just fucking happen? One, did I get away with 20 miles over the limit? And two, did I get out of it because he fucking recognized me? Me? <laughs> I mean, it's a story I tell now and I laugh about it now, but even now I can kind of feel a slight clenching in my chest going, holy shit. Um, so that's a kind of a long anecdote for a relatively what should have been short. But I'm like the Kevin Smith of horror fiction. I just won't shut the fuck up. Um, so I did that for years and then I became a fiction writer. Um, I started moving into freelance and um, it was just something to have. Like, you know, I, I don't picture myself as a Chuck Wendig who has his website or a John, or a John Scalzi, which has whatever. Um, that's literally the name of the website is whatever. Um, but I want some like little corner of the internet for myself. Actually, only in the past few months have I actually paid for a domain name. It <laughs> used to be Paul Michael Anderson at dot wordpress.com. And now it's the nothing space.net because the nothing space was the title of a story. Um, I published once and I like the title and I hate to put my name in it. Like Paul Michael Anderson.com. It just seems pretentious. Um, so I took a Stephen Graham. I took a page at Stephen Graham Jones, who his own website is not named after him. It's named after a story of his called Demon Theory. So I was like, I'll do that. And so like periodically, I get good at it, and I'll talk about things that catch my eye and stuff like that. Most of the time anymore, it's I'm just lazy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I it seems like I, I and I thought about it at one point. It's like 2017. It's after Bones came out, and I was like, I kind of tapped the tank empty when I was a columnist. Like I, I, as I got older, I was like, who cares what I have to say? And if it's not a one word, like little sarcastic line, like does anyone really, really want to hear my long form rantings about, you know, genre drama, you know, stuff going on in the horror genre. So anymore, I kind of just keep it to like Twitter being sarcastic and leave it at that. And even then I kind of pull back a little bit just because You know, and this is not against anyone who does blog. It really is not. It sounds like it, like I'm going to done it, like thing in a little bit. But the one thing I've learned, especially in the year of our Lord 2020, Hmm. is, you know, sometimes it's okay not to say anything and just kind of let other people's voices have the room. And again, especially in America right now, where I am one of the people who have the lowest setting of the game of life. Like, no one wants to hear from my privilege. I can use my privilege to help out friends quietly, not trumpet it, because then you're just doing it for attention. Um, but there comes a point where it's like, dude, tell me if you have something new out and cool, go go with God, you know, kind of thing. So that's really interesting because you you obviously say there that there's a part of you that, particularly in the nonfiction blogging space, that people don't want to hear your voice yet you're, you've been really prolific over the years with sort of short stories and your anthologies and, and getting your work out there. So what is, it about, what is it about fiction that makes you want to come to the page? Because by just extracting that logic from blogging, it's not necessary to send a message. So what is it you're trying to achieve with your fiction? Um, oh, that's a good question. Um, I always kind of look at it as, at the end of the day, I can throw some subtext and I can, th- and I can mine my own anxieties in fiction. But at the end of the day, I want someone to be entertained. I want to tell a story that catches a reader's eye and makes them go, that was good. Um, one of my favorite moments ever, and this is years ago. Well, sorry, it's like 2016. Um, 
which feels like forever ago. Um, I wrote a story for an anthology called Lost Signals. It was put out by Paramatural Motion, Motion Machine, which put out which is putting out standalone. And it was a story called All That You Leave Behind. Um, I became a parent in 2011. It wasn't in, it wasn't it it wasn't intentional, but my wife and I were very happy about it. We 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 were never planning on having kids. And I always had massive fears about becoming a father, becoming a parent. And then once the kid was here, all the things that you worry about as parents, you well know, like, and one of the things that kind of grew out of that, it's like, well, what if, especially during the pregnancy, there was some issues? What if there were complications? So I explored that in the story called All That You Leave Behind, which is about a young couple. They suffer like, it's not their first miscarriage, but it's like one of a bunch. And they're not handling it well because they thought this woman was going to go to term. And it's from the perspective of the would-be mother. And one day she comes aware of evidence uh, of things that there is a world out there where she did not lose the pregnancy, where she was still pregnant and she was carrying it to term. And as the story progresses, the two dimensions, the two different worlds kind of come together and overlap where she's almost feeling the pangs of pregnancy and labor. And when you've lost a child, to feel that kind of thing, the trauma is just, it's, it's not just ripping off the Band-Aid. It's opening the wound again and then stabbing it with a knife. And, you know, she's going through this process. And it actually has a kind of happy ending, an ambiguous ending, but you feel at peace with what the character, where the characters end up. But I always really loved it. I thought it turned out, it was one of those stories where even the, the writing of it and the, re, the uh, final product I was really happy with. But I was running low on time, so I only sent it out to one beta reader to kind of check it out. And she messages me back two hours later and calls me an asshole. And I was like, why? Because I was like, oh, shit, maybe I did something wrong because I'm writing from a female perspective. And you have to be careful to be respectful of other voices, especially if it's not your POV, your natural setting POV. And she's like, this story was so good, I burst into tears in a Starbucks and had to run into the restroom to kind of clean myself up. Because she just lost it. And... I was like, I'm so sorry, but yes, you know, <laughs> I'm, I am terribly sorry that you felt that. She's like, no, it's nothing bad. It was good. I had a really great visual reaction. I wasn't trying to have her, and she was trying to comfort me, like, don't feel that. I'm like, no, I don't feel that. I feel, I, you know, I'm glad you had that reaction. I hope you're okay. And she's like, no, it was great. And I, and at the end of the day, when it comes to short stories, when it comes to fiction, I want that emotional payoff for a reader, whether good, bad, or indifferent. I want them to feel something. I want them to be entertained. But at the, at the very end of the day, the bare bones of all that is I want them to be entertained. Um, nonfiction for me was, all, was not always a call to action. Some of my columns when I was a columnist were calls to action. Like, dude, separation of church state, we don't need 10 commandments on a courthouse wall. What the fuck? I'd be kind of sarcastic, like, are we really cynical kind of thing? Um, but I, you know, that's not necessarily what I want to do now. Now it's just like, hey, I got a story to tell you. See if you might like it. And that's kind of where I go anymore. That's really, really interesting. Um, it must, that's like the ultimate compliment to have that kind of reaction come from just a piece, a piece of, of your fiction. It's one of the reasons that I love the horror genre is the fact that you can elicit those extreme emotions just with word choice. Mm. Um, yes. Where, where was it you, you cut your teeth in fiction? Because like you say, you've been a, a columnist, you've been writing since 2002, potentially even before that. Where was it that you started to go into fiction and particularly horror fiction? Um, 
Well, when I was a kid, I was a fucking wuss. Uh, <laughs> I was scared. My mom grew up on horror movies. Um, there was a late night program when she was a kid in like the 50s and 60s called Chiller Theater. And I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania originally. So it's moderately sized city. They had their own TV stations and what have you. And she used to watch a local late night program called Chiller Theater. And she just grew up watching horror movies. So as a kid, it's not like she plunked me down in a little chair and said, hey, we're going to watch Jeff, uh, David Cronenberg's The Fly. But, you know, you just kind of see it. So as a kid, it terrified me. So I didn't understand the context. Now The Fly is one of my favorite movies. Um, but I got into reading fiction, um, like beyond comic books and things like that, like John Grisham of all people, because I was 13, uh, Time to Kill was coming out as a movie, and I, I thought it was really interesting. For some reason, it pinged with my 13-year-old mind. But no kids, no parents, gonna, and I don't really want to, go with a 13-year-old boy to go see A Time to Kill, which is about, you know, if you haven't seen it, it's about the brutal assault on a small child, the revenge the father gets, and then the legal drama of trying to get him, of trying to get justice served on all sides. Dealing with racism in America and stuff like that. So I got into fiction that way. And um, my mom at one point, and she takes so much fucking gleeful credit at this, <laughs> didn't know what else to read. And she was like, why don't you read The Talisman? by Stephen King and Peter Straub. And I was like, no, thanks. I'm thinking back to like seeing, being terrified of Jeff Goldblum as the fly. She's like, it's, not, it's very mild. But it was what gave me my first taste of reading it. In terms of writing it, um, it just kind of naturally developed. I've always written. I hate, I hate seeing those long bios on uh, authors. Like, he, Paul writes since he was, could hold a pencil. And it's like, great, we all could. But at <laughs> that point... Um, but when I was in high school, I was in a creative writing class because I could write horror fiction in that. And at about halfway through, this, uh, the teacher gave each student a letter. It was a small course, so it was like eight letters. Um, and his letter said, you know, uh, the, I still have it framed on my desk in my classroom. Um, there's no one I know who has a better shot at doing this for a living than you, but have a backup plan. That's, and that's when I kind of like, well, I love talking about writing. Why couldn't I teach it? Um, but in terms of like why I started writing fiction, it's like I said, I always kind of wrote fiction and kind of going into it and kind of leaving nonfiction behind. Every kid initially just wants to see their name in print. Like, whoo, that's my name above my words. Um, you have to be a little more smart about that, especially in the business world because people take the pennies off a dead man's eyes and they'll steal a kid's work um, and just be like, yeah, you'll get exposure. Um, so I kind of cut my teeth in fic horror fiction kind of as later in life. Like some kids grow up, some people grow up and they always love horror. I came to it later. And I think what the thing I always loved about horror was you get away from the visceral reaction, you get away from the blood and guts and horror if done right, it's about empathy you feel empathy towards these, this, these characters and the, and the ordeal they're going through. And so like, I, I, I can watch a slasher and I can enjoy the special effects kills and stuff like that. But for me, one of the most gut wrenching horrific movies ever is a movie called the hours, which had like Ed Harris and Nicole Kidman. It's based on a book. And there's one scene, it takes place in three different timelines. One's the 1950s. Um, where this mother, she's kind of a 1950s housewife, but she's incredibly depressed, incredibly unhappy. One day she decides she's going to kill herself. And so she drops the kid off, her son off at the neighbors. And there's a scene where she's driving away and she's crying. She's held it in until she got away from her son. 
and her son's at the picture window just banging at the glass because she knows he knows something's wrong. And even thinking about it now, that is such a gut-wrenching, horrible reaction. And that's what always attracted me to horror, that empathy. Like I connected with that kid at that moment. And that's what has always kind of drawn me to that genre. Horror, like, crime is a structure. Westerns are a structure and a setting. Science fiction is a structure and a setting. But like things like horror and to a point romance, um, they're, more, they're, they're more abstract. So you can place those elements in any story. Um, you could write a crime story that's a horror novel. You could write a romance story that's a Western. And, and they do. There's a whole subgenre to it. And I love that kind of aspect. I love, the, I love that feeling. Mm. I find it really interesting because if you ever look at the, the horror charts on, on Amazon, for example, it's never just your straight-laced horror. It's, it's like you say, it's um, fantasy, it's thriller, it's all these different yes. subgenres within or where horror is the subgenre. Um, so it is almost like a flavor that you're adding to these stories mm-hmm. that has different sort of, of um, levels. And I was, I was, very, I connect a lot with your journey because I, I was the same. I didn't really come to horror early. I was uh, not necessarily a wuss kid, but I didn't come into horror probably until I was about 15, 16, and it was Stephen King's Cujo that brought me into reading. Oh, horror. God, the ending of that story. Holy oh, shit. And that, that's exactly what you're talking about there. You, you root so much for, for, I cannot remember the character names, uh, Tag, I believe, is the, the kid. Um, you root so much for him and his mother and for them to survive this ordeal. Um, if mm-hmm. people haven't read it, I won't say anything, but you can kind of guess what happens. And it is, you've got, the, you've got this horror, but it's really, you're really rooting for them to survive. And yes. within most horror books, and I fall prey to this every time, I don't know why, but anytime I read a horror book, there's a part of me that still believes that things are going to be okay, even though you know traditionally what a horror story gives. And then when it twists at the end and people don't survive, I'm just like, why was I tricked by this? Um, it's funny you say that. Two points. One, I just read an article last night. It's on TorNightFire.com, um, the new horror imprint that Tor put out. Eric Nunnally, he's a great writer. He um, put out the novel um, he, "Lightning Wears a Red Cape," and um, oh god, there's his Alex. There are two his, his two Alexander books, and I blurred one of them, so I'm feeling really bad for the title. <laughs> but Eric Nunnally, A E R R I C K, he's a great writer, and he wrote an article. We we're talking about the genre mixing. He was like, "There's nothing more horrible than history, particularly American history," and he was giving a series of recommendations of nonfiction texts that people could read if they want a more true-to-life horror, like talking about Tulsa Massacre and things like that, and the Red Scare of 1919. It was really great. But you say, like, you always read a, you can't put in a book, and you're like, I hope it turns out. I've read Pet Cemetery now, like, four times, and there's that scene in the book, it's not in either version of the movie, where um, uh, Creed saves his son from, uh, it's a 30-plus-year 30, oh, 30 book, so spoilers on that um when is about to get hit by a truck there's a scene in it where he saves the kid and you watch the kid grow up and i'm like it's gonna turn out okay and that the last it's only like a page and a half and the bottom of the page you realize he's just um, creed the main character is just imagining this as he sits at his kitchen table holding it (laughs) and it's like every i haven't read it in years but every i've read it a bunch of times and every time i came to that scene like it's gonna turn out okay and then it doesn't it doesn't you're just gut wrenched. Mm. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's. I don't, know, I don't know what it is. There's, there's just a fundamental part that just makes you hope, and I don't know if that's just you know being human, um, mm-hmm. or, or what it is. But it always, it always pulls out. Uh, one, one thing I really want to uh, explore a little with you is, um, obviously, like we say, you've been sort of deep in the fiction game, the horror fiction game, particularly for 
uh, the last four or five years, you've mm-hmm. you've written with um, a lot of big names and a lot of very very well known publications. We've got Perpetual Potion, per- Perpetual. Every time I hate Max for this because every time I say it, it's awful. Perpetual yeah. Potion Publishing, Crystal Lake Publishing, Scarlet Galleon Publications, Dark Regions Press, to name but a few. You've written in anthologies featuring people like Josh Malaman, Max Meath III, Tim Wagner, Ramsey Campbell, Paul Tremblay, Jack Ketchum. For mm-hmm. me, as someone who is aspiring to hit that sort of level of being around those names and being up in those publications, what was it that took you from a horror writer who was just doing his thing into sort of the next, the next level? It was, you know, early on, when I was a kid and I thought, I'll be a writer, I, you know, you try to write books. And, I, and the thing that kind of changed my mind on that was I read Stephen King's On Writing. And I don't know if he set, spells it out deliberately, but it's definitely in the subtext of like, make your bones in short fiction, learn the form. Because if you can master short fiction, it's not necessarily a one-to-one that you can get into longer form, but it gives you, it learn, teaches you word economy, teaches you pacing, teaches you how to build te- tension because you only have so many words. So I kind of just deliberately, it was like, I'm going to write short fiction. I'm going to kind of make my bones as they say. Um, and it really was just me plugging away. Um, it wasn't like I made this, you know, people go to conventions, things like that, or email people or they'll friend people on Facebook, hoping to network. And it's like, I never have that attitude. If I accept a friend request, it's because you look cool. Um, you seem like you're not a creep. And I, and if I friend someone, it's not because I'm like, Ooh, this will help me with my career. It's more like, oh, you seem interesting. Like Josh, Josh is the most down to earth guy. Um, he's, and he's, and he, and it, it, his attitude, I met him finally face to face last year. It's always like this goofy. I'm like, I can't believe I get to do this for a living glee. And that's the kind of thing. And I love that. Not like it was expected or entitled to. Um, so yeah, I've been in a lot of publications with bigger names. Dallas, Jack Ketchum, um, was, he's one of my two inspirations. Like when I think of how to craft a story, I think of what would Jack, it's almost like, what would Jesus do? What would Jack do? Uh, <laughs> how would Jack explore this? Cause my head tends to go in that direction. Um, but it really was just a series of plugging away and be like, all right, let me try this story. Let me try this story. Let me try this story. Like I, you know, I have a bunch of, tr- I do at this point have a bunch of trunk novels and I have stories that I thought were really great. And you know, I, they don't sell. So I put them in a trunk and I kind of look at them later, years later. I'm like, yeah, that didn't really work. Or I could maybe be able to cannibalize a part of it for something else. But that was a slow acquisition. Cause like I toiled in the, in the micro micro press for a while. There are certain stories I don't even own anymore. Not like legally, they're still my stories, but I don't like say their name. They're not in any bibliography of mine because I was still kind of learning my craft. Um, things really started taking off in 2011. And I, it just kind of went from there. Like my first real joy is I wrote a story. I was teaching a workshop at a convention and I don't know why I had no real, I had maybe two publications, my name beyond being a journalist, but I was a teacher. They knew me and I was a horror writer. So you go teach a workshop. And I got an idea for a story at a workshop and it was a baking hot summer. So I spent it. We only, we didn't have central air. We had an air conditioner in our bedroom before I had a kid. And, uh, I sat in our bedroom, my wife hanging out, watching something on TV, just banging out the story called baby grows a conscience. And I wrote it like three days edited it briefly. My wife is, I think it's my wife's still my wife's favorite story of mine just cause it's so 
just goes to the wall as quickly as possible. And so I wrote it at the end of July, edited at the beginning of August, and by October it had been sold. Like and I was wow. sold it to like one market, and it was a magazine called Necrotic Tissue, which sounds really gross, but it wasn't really an extreme horror magazine. But that publication I was in with Damien Angelica Walters, Fran Freil, uh, Friel, I don't know how to say her last name. You know, so even then it was kind of starting. It's just the constant plugging away. Um, I do not write with as much, I don't have as much time to write as, as much now to plug away as many stories. Like I think I have like six stories out to various markets. Um, but I have gotten to a place now where you know, if I write a story, Michael Bailey, who was my editor on Bones, he does the Cairo Mad anthologies for charities, stuff like that. He'll be like, hey, you got something? I'll be like, maybe. And I'll send him something. I'm like, this doesn't really fit. He's like, no, it fits perfectly. I want it. Like, oh, okay. Um, and, but so I, you know, I have no say in who's going to be in the table of contents. So it's mostly like, oh, you got so-and-so? That's awesome. I get to be beside them. You know? <laughs> I've been in a bunch of books at this point with Stephen Graham Jones. I think I've been in like three books with Stephen Graham Jones, which is amazing because he's an amazing writer. I've been in a few books with uh, Dallas. I've been in a few books with Stephen King, you know, reprints, but that's what people know. It's like, hey, Stephen King's in this. Um, And that's mostly just like, oh, that worked out well. (laughs) Did you know this podcast is powered by Acast? Acast is the home of podcasting. For creators looking for freedom to grow their listeners and make money too. And creative brands looking for smart ways to advertise. Podcasters and advertisers in the know know Acast. It's time you did too. Visit Acast.com to find out more. Acast. For the stories. Nice. As someone who's uh, currently working on an anthology, um, in the sense that I'm editing it, I've put out for submissions. I'm now in the final rounds of narrowing down everyone into the final collection, which is very exciting because um, I've worked on a couple of anthologies before alongside a group of writers who I worked on with the Other Stories podcast. But this is the first one where I'm solely going, OK, I'm, I'm seeking people. And yeah. from a publisher, publisher perspective, I know what it is I'm looking for. I've now seen... I already knew the kind of things I didn't want to see, but now that's been amplified by the amount of things I have seen that I didn't want to see within the submissions. Um, What would you say from a writer's perspective is a, or what what are your top tips for trying to get confirmed into an anthology? I mean, one, you know, some writers I know, they'll look at what's at open calls and they'll try to write a story for them. I've done that myself. Um, the first thing, before you sit down, you have to actually want to tell that story. You know, like there are some open calls I see and I'm like, that sounds interesting, but I have absolutely nothing. Um, no idea. But in terms of the writing itself, um, you know, there's a thing called hook line theory. You have a great hook line. And that kind of took over, especially in um, after Stephen King's on writing, because everyone reads that book, especially in dark fiction, everyone reads it. And so they'll come up with a great hook line. And then the next three pages are backstory of, you know, so they'll have a line like Timmy set the hobo on fire with some kerosene he found around the corner. And then the next paragraph is like, Timmy woke up that morning, not knowing he was going to set a hobo on fire. He got up and he had a bagel and he had some coffee and it's like, okay, you got a great hook line, but follow through. Mm. Best advice I ever, especially for short fiction in terms of anthologies is one followed in the guidelines, but that's kind of mechanical, is Joe Lansdale, who's a great writer in his own right, um, 
he, I think he said on social media at some point, he was like, every word in a story has to carry the weight of the previous two. Ooh, attention to your word order. And I've always kind of taken that to heart. You know, there is a vast difference between active writing, you know, he opened the door versus passive writing. The door was opened by him, you know? Um, and certain people naturally kind of go towards that passive voice. I try, uh, and even I do at some point, um, but I read my stuff aloud beforehand. And most people don't speak in passive voice. They speak in active voice, even if they write passively and they'll stumble. Um, but in terms of getting into those anthologies, like one, follow the guidelines, don't piss the editor off. But two, make sure that every word you're trying to fit, because I'll see people comment on these open calls like, well, I have, and they only want like, say, 5,000 word stories max. Like, well, I have a 7,000 word story. Would you accept that? And can you cut it down? No. <laughs> I'm getting PTSD. I had it, my, my anthology is 5,000 to 10,000 words, and I had quite a few people trying to submit 2,000 word uh, stories. I was just like, no, but they, they'll, they'll email you specifically and ask. Yeah. And you're like, I have to waste my time replying to this. Yeah. Yeah. That's all. I mean, I've done some editing in my time, and that's always what drove me nuts um, because these people, the editors have the time to do it. But look, think about the think of the end of the equation. Um, the reader. Does the reader want to sit there for either a really short story where they really can't dig in, or do they want to sit, do they want to dig into a, a 10,000 word story where you build a mythology that is not going to matter because it's, again, an anthology. There are about 10, 12, 20 other writers in that book that are pitching the same kind of game and they might be doing it better than you. So make sure you're using your space wisely, you know, kind of thing. I love the um, the the idea that you have this store of short stories. I think, it, is it the, the Clive Barker challenge where it's write one story every day? No, the Ray Bradbury challenge, write um, one story a week for 52 weeks. And then there's no way oh. you can have 52 bad stories. Um, um, no, I mean, I know like uh, David, I know Michael David Wilson did that one year. And I know a writer, Jess McHugh, who's a great person. She's done it once or twice at least. Um for me, I just always have an idea kind of bouncing around when the pandemic hit and we were for like a month, we didn't have anything because at schools were scrambling what, how we were going to teach. I just had this time, you know, I was home. My wife's an essential worker. So she was still going to work. She works in a processing plant as a supervisor. So I'm home with the kiddo and you know, you take care of the house or, but my kid's also at an age where she doesn't want my attention 24 hours a day. She wants to go off and make art or watch a movie or whatever. So I had this time on my hands to just kind of come up with ideas and sit and explore some of these ideas. So like in the first six weeks of the pandemic, I wrote like five or six stories that were good ish. I probably wrote like 10 stories and I'm like, these are trash. I tend to write like 2000 between 1500 and 3000 words a day. So I can finish the story within a day or two, but then I'll take a break off. Like I, like we started the school year this past week. And I, the weekend before I'd started a story for, I was kind of invited to submit to an anthology. They were kind of like, you're sending me something, right? I'm like, yes. <laughs> um, you hadn't really asked and I hadn't really thought of it, but I like the idea. So I'll try to write something. Um, but I haven't touched it in like a week. Um, I was actually thinking about that the other day of like, you know, there's the, uh, the cliche of you have to write every day. And I do try to write every day. When I, once I get into a rhythm, I will write every day, especially if I have some work. I have an idea I have I want to explore. But, you know, when I finish a story, I also just 
I'll kick back and be like, nah, I'm going to watch Land of the Dead again with by George Romero or <laughs> watch Big Hero 6 with my kid or, um, you know, I'm going to hang out with my dogs. Um, just because, like, uh, the one thing I always see young writers do, and I, I, I knew Harlan Ellison. We were colleagues. I was there for like a year and a half. Um, and he said, joke, he's like, I used to have a t-shirt that says, not tonight, dear, I have a deadline. And you have to put in the work. Writing is nothing, is, is, is nothing more fanciful than plumbing or brickling. It's a job. And there, you put foot pounds of pressure on the keyboard or the pen to put out that work. It's hard work. But, and it's worthy work. It's valid work. But especially with writing, when you're supposed to be taking a slice of life and extrapolating to whatever direction you have interest in, you have to kind of stop and be like, you're living a life too. And you can't pull from life if you're not living it. Like, for example, this is my one interview today. Um, I have no idea what the rest of the day is going to have for me. I think I just heard my wife get up or my daughter, one of the two. And I'm going to go hang out with them because I have school tomorrow and they have school tomorrow and she has work tomorrow. I'm like, so I'm not going to write today. Probably not. Maybe. (laughs) She might decide I'm going to go hiking and I'm not much of a hiker. But unless it's... If she wants to go for a stroll, I'll go with her. If she wants to go like on a mountain hike, I'll be like, you have fun. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that's that's life. That's the thing I, you know, I look for. We've spoken a lot about your short stories. And I think as we're sort of narrowing down to the end of the interview, it would be a mistake not to go into standalone, which, as we mentioned in the intro, launches tomorrow. Um, yeah. One quote that I did read from you on the This Is Horror blog is that oftentimes you write short stories because the ideas don't tend to stretch into sort of longer works. But this one came to you with full force demanding to be written. So what is it about Standalone that got you into that position? And talk us a little through about uh, how it's being published and what your hopes are with that book. Um, I had the idea around the time that I was putting together, we were copy editing Bones Are Made To Be Broken. Bones Are Made To Be Broken is, all reprint and thought, is an all reprint collection because I have this weird kind of I hate the idea of putting out a collection of stuff that hasn't been kind of vetted by other editors. You know, you put something, you put like a one or two original pieces in the, in the book, just so it's not a complete like greatest hits collection. But that's what I call bones. It's like my greatest hits collection for my first five years of writing. Um, but I got the idea around that time. And one of my favorite movies is a movie called behind the mask, the rise of Leslie Vernon, which is a meta slasher. And it, it's about a group of, graduate student documentarians who are filming the ascent of what is hopefully going to be a future slasher killer. In this universe, Michael Myers, Jason Voorhees, Freddy Krueger, they're just killers. And the whole supernatural aspect is kind of just their mythology, but they're just regular dudes who go in and slaughter a bunch of people. And this guy, Leslie Vernon, wants to join their ranks. And the story tells how he does that. Very deconstruction. And I was like... They made him charming in the first two thirds of the movie, and then it takes a turn in the third one, and he's you know he is the villain. But I was, but the idea I had was how could I make a slasher killer under like unspeakably evil, and there's no excuse for what he does. Like Freddy Krueger, by the end of his series, people are rooting for the kills. He's the anti folk hero of those movies, and that and so you forget about the victims that he's killing. So. I was like, what if there was a killer who does understandably evil things that a reader would be like, this is evil, that even he realizes is evil, um, but you're still sympathetic to him. Like there's a context where he's doing evil things, he's knowing doing evil things for the hopes of maybe doing a right thing, but that doesn't, that isn't comfort to his victims. 
So his antagonists would be victims who are like, I had no right. I, I don't have a right to die and stuff like that. So I, I liked the kind of moral murkiness of I have this protagonist who's a bad guy. You're kind of rooting for him. But if he fails, you also understand that. Um, and I, I was like, this has to be something. So I went around and I was asking people I knew, like Bracken McLeod and Max Booth, like, have you heard of this? And they're like, no. Kind of scream, I guess. But even they, they weren't trying to like make him a good guy. He was a bad they, Ghostface was a bad guy. Um, so I sat on it because I didn't know how to make it make sense for a long time. And then about two years ago, I started finally sitting down. And this was the first story I wrote after I quit smoking. I'd smoked for like 20 years. And I was one of those like stereotypical smoker, writing smokers. I mean, I never wrote smoke around my daughter. I'd go outside, but there was very ritualistic. So my head was in a weird place because I took away that chemical. And so I was like, all right, I think I figured out how to do it because I always have an interest in like parallel dimensions and uh, like sliders and quantum leap and stuff like that. I always have an interest in that kind of thing. I'm terrible at science though. Um, so I was like, I can make it make sense. These guys do this because if they don't, it will create some imbalance in, the, in existence and existence will collapse. They have to kill these people and transform that energy in some way. Um, so we got so a very human story got very big very fast and that fascinated me. It was not easy to write because um, I kind of referenced this earlier. My two big influences are Jack Ketchum and Harlan Ellison, who are polar opposites in terms of interests, um, uh, mechanics, and execution. And you know Harlan was has big fantastic ideas with very big themes. Sometimes they're billboards. Sometimes they're just they inform all the action. Then there's Dallas, Jack, who wrote very human-based stories and really kind of went your nose to the nose to the ground where you can see the little pebbles on the ground kind of thing. And so Standalone kind of became a me trying to thread the needle between the two of them, of those two kind of sensibilities. Because I do, I have this, you know, the story that gleefully has kill set pieces that you would see in a slasher. Um, and I wrote them with glee, but I was trying to build up an emotional gradient throughout the story that the payoff at the end, it it will be like, Oh, Oh shit. Oh, Oh, you know? Um, and that idea fascinated me. Like I said, it wasn't an easy one to write because I was trying to find a way to keep it all make sense for the reader. I didn't want the reader to have to read five page info dumps to make it make sense. But I also didn't want to not have an explanation or some kind of, interior logic that they couldn't follow like wait why is this happening beyond the typical mystery of like i want to figure out the source of this kind of thing and so that kind of just stuck in my head and usually when i'm writing if someone emails me it's like hey i have this anthology you want to write something i'll or i have a new idea i'll kind of put something aside and work on something else i can't work on multiple projects at once and this was one of those times where like i had nothing else so i was like i'm gonna explore this um so i wrote it sat on it for a little bit, let it kind of grow fond in my memory. And then I went back through with a pen, you know, and I'm a, I'm a notorious overwriter. I overwrite like a fiend because I got, I'm telling myself the story first. So when I go in the second draft, it's me taking out everything that's not a story that's not relevant to the reader. Like what can I cut out that was more for me, but the reader isn't needed to understand what's going on. So once I cut that out, I started like, oh, well, novellas are kind of, they're kind of their own thing now. They've kind of come back. People want something longer than a short story that takes 10 minutes to read, but they want 
they don't want to have the marriage that a novel is. They want to have a quick fling, you know? If a short story is a kiss in the dark, a novel's a marriage, a novella's kind of like a brief fling during your summer, your college years, you know? And so I reached out to a few people and Max was one of them. And Max I'd worked with before on both sides. I've been his editor. He's been my editor on a few things. I've been his editor on a few things back when I was an editor. And he's like, yeah, I'll take a look at it. And I was like, awesome. And he fell in love with it. He was like, this is weirdly beautiful. I was like, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's where kind of, and that's where the, the starting line was. It's like, okay, let's put this book out. See if we can get, you know, see if anyone else is going to find this weirdly beautiful story. <laughs> Nice. Yeah, it's exciting to see that come out. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll link to the uh, book in the show notes so people can go see it if they want to. Um, we are unfortunately cutting short on time, and I have so much that I do want to dive into with you. One uh, one thing that I'll jump into, just because this came up recently, and it's been mentioned a little bit during our conversation so far, which is um, around blurbs. I, I had a friend who, if he's listening to this, hi, uh, you know who you are, um, approached me this week basically asking about good practice to try and get people to blurb their books. So obviously being on the side where you're asking people and being on the side where you've blurbed for other people, what would you say Mm -hmm. to someone like him who's, who's trying to put themselves in that position? Oh God, it's, you know, everyone talks about how like gut wrenching is to advertise your work on social media, like LinkedIn, like especially now when people, when money's tight for a lot of people and people are struggling. Um, But blurbs are a weirdly intimate version of that. Um, like the blurb I got from Dallas, from Jack Ketchum, that well, I knew Dallas at that point. We were colleagues, sort of. We were acquaintances. We'd met. But my editor knew him really well. So he reached out and asked for me because I probably, like, I wouldn't fanboy. I'd already done that years before. Um, but I wouldn't know how to address it because Dallas, Dallas was an incredibly giving person, incredibly personal person. I miss him a lot. I pass by, like, when I leave here, I'm, a, I'm in a guest bedroom. I pass by my bookcases. And the top of my bookcase is a bunch of Dallas. Is I have I have set aside from the rest of my books are my Jack Ketchum books with my Harlan Ellison books. Um, but people have just I'm I'm always I'm always like hey I always look at a good story. I don't blurb everything that I get. And I don't get asked a ton, but I guess a fairish amount. Um, and I don't mind as long as I have time. I'll read a story and I'll be like and I'll be honest with someone. I was like hey I don't I didn't really have time to get into this. It didn't I wasn't in the headspace for it or whatever. Um, for asking, oh, that's awful. <laughs> it is awful. And it's mostly, that's the one benefit of social media is you kind of get to know people. So you can be personal. So you're not cold calling them essentially. Um, but there have been times where I've cold called people essentially. Like, hey, would you mind, would you be interested in this? Stephen Graham Jones was one of those. Like I respect his work and we kind of talked in email once or twice, but we didn't know each other and we still don't really know each other that well. But I asked him, and it was just luck would have it. He had a he had a space in his calendar. He's like, yeah, I'll take a look. I'm definitely slash. If you've ever read Stephen Graham Jones, slashers are up his street. Um, and so I just got lucky. And he, I sent it off to him with no. He was like, no promises, of course. And I was like, of course. You know, I'm just glad you're saying, hey, I'll take a look at it. Um, and he emailed me back saying, dude, that was really great. I'm really glad you sent me this. And he gave me my blurb, and I was like, yay. <laughs> um, but as it for advice, uh, you know. I always hear stories of writers being really like, I am a writer and you should just feel honored to read my work. And they carry this attitude through social media and apparently through emails. I don't really interact with those type of people because I just, I, I've been lucky apparently. Um, <laughs> but when you ask someone, you have to understand that they're giving you your time, their time. They're giving you their attention. Um, so 
my advice is like make it as easy for them as possible. It's like with when you're submitting to an editor, it's like make it for, as easy for them to like you as possible. Follow the guidelines, stuff like that. Hmm. Um, if someone says, "Hey, I don't really have time right now," oh, cool, totally understand. Um, thanks. Yeah, anyway, I look forward to whatever new they have out. Um, and just kind of and but don't hold your breath and don't dun them for it. Um, like I've gotten a few blurbs on this book, like from Jonathan Jans and Aaron Dry, Stephen Graham Jones, of course. Um, Adam Cedar uh, talked about it on his YouTube, and it was mostly just me going to him, like, "Hey, um, this might be of interest to you. Um, would you want to take a look at it? If not, totally cool. Hope all is going well. Talk to you later." Um, and I've gotten lucky on that front, but I, it's I, I think it's because I haven't acted like a complete douche. Like you definitely want to read this, and you should take up all your time. You know, kind of thing. Yeah, well, that's good. That pretty much backs up um, the advice that I gave. So I'm glad I'm glad I got that from someone else because I've definitely got a, a couple of, of books that are out there, and um, people have been kind enough to say if I'm if if I have the time, I'll take a look at them. Um, yeah, giving them giving them that out where you've got to understand that you know they have lives, they're busy, and yeah, like it's not it's no small feat to read a book when you think of actually how many hours you have to commit to the actual art of reading. Exactly. Exactly. One, one final question before we dive into my quick fire round. Um, and it's a question that I ask everyone on this show. And that is Paul Michael Anderson. Why do you write? Um, Cause I want to entertain people at the end of the day. Like I, I love talking about things that make me neurotic. Or <laughs> 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 me mining my depths of a parent and stuff like that. Um, or anxieties I have about life. But at the end of the day, I want people to be entertained. I want people to have a good time. If, you know, fiction's an escape, like a movie or a TV show or a book or a, another book or music or whatever, you know, I, I want, I want to make it as easy for them to be like, Oh, I'm going to take a step outside of my life for like 20 minutes and see what's going on. I'm reading a book now by a woman named Angie Thomas. Um, it's called on the come up. She wrote the book, the hate you give. I read a lot of different genres. Um, and I love the hate you give because it took me back to my childhood. I grew up in very diverse neighborhood. Um, so I was like, Oh, I feel like I'm home again. And so I being on the come up the other day and my daughter was at a lesson for something and the hour passed and, you know, I'm stressed about work. I'm stressed about the fall, you know, stuff like that. And for like that hour, I was just in this world of this young MC trying to get her start in, as a hip hop artist, as a rapper. And I was totally in. And that's, and that's what I want. That's why, why I became a writer. So I want people to be entertained at the end of the day. Mm. I find that sometimes you go through slumps where one book will have such an impact on you and then you read another books and they're good, but they've not necessarily taken you into that world. And sometimes you get to a point yeah. where like, I just need one incredible book. Yeah, to away. exactly. Exactly. I give a book. I tell my kids this, my students this, like, cause they, they, a lot of people have this attitude. And once you start a book, you have to finish. I'm like, no, there are so many books out there. Mm-hmm. So 50 pages. If it doesn't get, give you attention, go. There was one time I was reading a haunted house book and it was like a heavily lauded book but I could not, I was 300 pages into it. And I, and I stopped reading for the night. And I'm like, I could not finish this story and I would not care. And so I didn't, I put it aside. I donated it to like a free library. And I was like, I'm going to go pick a book that captures my attention. There's so much, there's so many stories out there and not every story is for everyone. So like, why waste your time on a story that's obviously not meant for you? But Damn. as a writer, I'm trying to create a story for you, you know, kind of thing couldn't agree more okay so into the quick fire round now which is 10 questions i'm going to throw at you as quickly as possible you can pass at any point it's all in good fun they're all random are you ready to go sure if you could have one superpower what would it be flight do you believe in ghosts 
Mm, no, but I'm open to evidence. What's your favorite clothing brand? I don't have one. <laughs> what are you currently reading? On the Come Up by Angie Thomas. If a fire or an electrical surge erased all of your work and you were only able to save one of your stories, which one would it be? Oh, fuck off. Uh, <laughs> <sighs> oh, God. I'm not passing on this one because, but like, you're trying to pick favorite children. And I like, <laughs> I like, I have many children, but I have one child, a few children I like. Um, All that you leave behind. Uh, surf or turf or salad? Turf. Worst piece of advice you've ever received? Reply back to rejection letters. What's one place you would never want to visit? Florida. What's your favorite way to let off steam? Um, hanging with my kid watching Teen Titans Go. Amazing. Good choice as well. Uh, and that's 10 questions. One extra question is, where can my listeners find out about everything that you are working on? Um, I'm pre- fairly active on Twitter, so you can find me under the very inspired handle of um, Paul Michael Anderson, P underscore M underscore Anderson, or my website, which I try to update fairly regularly, um, the nothingspace.net. Beautiful. And I've links to all of those in the show notes. And uh, Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm glad we finally managed to make this happen. Yeah, no, thanks for having me, Daniel. I appreciate it. And And thank you everyone for listening and I will see you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Great Writer Share podcast. Join us next week when John will be talking to author Laura Kendrick. Don't forget you can get early access to every episode of the Great Writer Share podcast and the chance to ask upcoming guests any of your questions just by becoming a patron of the show. All you need to do is visit www.patreon.com forward slash greatwritershare and support the show for as little as $1 a month. One more time, that's www.patreon.com forward slash greatwritershare. Until next time.